This is Ethics Bites with me, David Edmonds. And me, Nigel Warburton. Ethics Bites is a series of interviews on applied ethics produced in association with the Open University. For more information about Ethics Bites and about the Open University, go to open2.net. In 1975, Animal Liberation was published. In hindsight, a seminal work of philosophy, marking the birth of the modern animal rights movement, though its author spoke not of rights per se, but, as a utilitarian, in terms, put crudely, of maximising interests or happiness. The Australian author is now at Princeton, and perhaps the world's most famous philosopher. He argues that some animals have a higher moral status than some humans, and that our disregard for animal suffering is a deplorable moral blind spot. He also has contentious views on euthanasia, abortion, on infanticide, on civil disobedience, and on how much we should give to charity. But Ethics Bites spoke to Peter Singer about how humans should treat animals. Peter Singer, welcome to Ethics Bites. Thank you, Nigel. It's good to be with you. Now, the topic we're going to focus on is the ethics of using animals both in food or as food and in research. Before we start, it's probably best to get clear about what you understand by a person because you distinguish a person from a human being. What's the difference? A person for me is someone who is aware of their own existence over time, is aware enough to realise that they're the same being who lived previously and who can expect to live into the future. So most human beings are persons, but None of us were born persons. Newborn infants are not persons. And some non-human animals are persons, but not all non-human animals are persons. So what kind of non-human animal might be a person? A chimpanzee, for example, I think is probably aware of its own existence over time. So I think there's good evidence that chimpanzees are persons. And what about adult humans who lack the mental capacity to think about their own past as their own? Would they not be persons? I think they're no longer persons. They may have been persons, and we may wish to respect the wishes that they had when they were persons. But there comes a time, at least if the body outlives your intellectual capacities to such an extent that you can no longer be aware of your past or even of the idea that you have a future, then you would cease to be a person. Somebody listening to this who's not a philosopher would say, well, look, you can define a person, you can define a human being. So what? Yeah, absolutely. That's quite the right reaction. Definitions don't show anything normatively. But I do think that the idea of a being who can envisage his or her own future is morally significant because if you compare the wrongness of killing a being who is capable of having some anticipation of the future, some desires for the future, perhaps even some projects to complete in the future, and you kill such a person who wants to go on living, You're doing something wrong to that person, which is something that you're not doing if you kill a being who is clearly not a person and who can have no wishes or hopes for the future and therefore you can't cut off or thwart or frustrate those wishes for the future. So I think the concept of the term person points to something that is relevant in the specific context of the wrongness of killing. See, to me, the issue with animals is whether they suffer or not. All kinds of animals are capable of suffering, even if they don't have a conception of their life continuing. I totally agree. You brought up the topic of persons, not me. I think the major issue about animals and the way we treat them is the fact that they're capable of suffering. I don't think it's about the wrongness of killing them. And it's interesting that many of your critics focus on descriptions of a situation where you're playing off a human being who is less than a person against an animal which is a person. 
I think that's a tactic, maybe is quite an effective tactic with some audiences anyway. They try and say that I think animals in some circumstances deserve more consideration than humans do. It's accurate that there are some situations, though I think they're quite rare ones, where that would be true, where the human was so intellectually disabled or incapable of understanding things that you would want to give preference to the non-human animal that would have greater interests in going on living or not suffering in a certain way. But it's, it's really completely irrelevant to the vast majority of the cases in which we are interfering with animals, that is where we're producing them for food, where obviously they're suffering and it's not at all necessary for me to say that they somehow have the same, let alone a superior status to humans, to just point to the fact that we're inflicting unnecessary suffering on them and that should be enough to make it wrong given that we're not doing this in order to save human lives but just because we like to eat a certain kind of food. Another concept that's important in your work, not just the idea of suffering, but the idea of speciesism, the idea that it's somehow akin to racism to treat other animals, non-human animals, in a way that we wouldn't treat human beings. It's not so much that we're treating animals in a way we wouldn't treat human beings, because sometimes that may be appropriate, given that they have different interests, different capacities. Sometimes we should treat them differently, just as we sometimes treat small children differently and should treat them differently from the way we treat older human beings. The point about speciesism is that we give less weight to the interests of beings who are not members of our species simply because they're not members of our species, not looking at their individual characteristics, not looking at their capacities or what's good for them or what's bad for them. But we just say, well, they're not members of the species Homo sapiens. Therefore, we can use them for our purposes, for our ends. We don't have to treat them as if their ends mattered. Whereas if we have a human being, no matter what the mental level of that human being, that human being's life is sacred, that human being is an end in itself, we must respect the dignity of that human being, and so on. That speciesism, to just take the species in itself as determinative of moral status. But isn't that quite a good rule of thumb? Most occasions faced with a human being, they're likely to have a conception of themselves evolving over time. They're likely to have a great capacity to feel pain and to suffer in a way that a haddock is. Well, for one thing, not all of our encounters with animals are with haddock. For another, while I would agree with the first part of what you said, that the human is certainly likely to have a more of a self-conception, more of an awareness of itself as existing over time, I'm not so clear that human beings are going to have a greater capacity to suffer. We know that non-human animals have some senses that are more acute than ours. Eagles have better eyesight. Dogs have a better sense of smell and so on. It's not at all impossible that because of their need to live in sharp contact with the world to evolve that animals have capacities to feel pain that are just as acute or more acute than ours. We shouldn't take it as a rule of thumb that humans always suffer more than animals, and certainly not that human suffering matters more, which is really the point about speciesism, to say that even where we make no claim that the human does suffer more, nevertheless the suffering of the human matters more just because it is a human being. Now, the two main ways in which many of us use animals are as food and in some kind of experimentation, possibly for scientific research, possibly researching cosmetics. You're a utilitarian, that is, you're interested in maximising happiness in some sense, or maximising the interests of sentient beings. That's what makes something right or wrong. That's right. Whether all things considered, and in the long run, you've done what's best in the interests of or to satisfy the preferences of all sentient beings. It just complicates everything. Most of us, most of the time, are actually most interested in other human beings. If you start including all kinds of animals... 
how do you work out what to do? I suppose it does complicate things a bit, just as if you're a, a white European in the 18th century, it probably complicated things to have to consider the interests of Africans, uh, which interferes with your profitable trade in slaves, maybe. But even though it's more complicated, it's still something we ought to do. Now, it is true that the calculations can't be done with any precision at all, but I think that we can have some situations where we can make rough comparisons and where it's pretty clear that we're inflicting more suffering than is justified by the benefit we're getting out of it. And I would say one of those examples is factory farming. In factory farming, we confine animals in conditions that really, for their entire lives, make them miserable. They can't satisfy their basic needs, neither physically in terms of moving around, exercising, having comfortable bedding, nor socially and psychologically in terms of mixing with the right kind of social groups that's suited for their species. Laying hens might be suffering for their entire lives more than a year or so. Breeding sows might be in stalls for also pretty much their entire lives. And then you have to say, well, what do we get out of this? Well, we produce food a little more cheaply. I don't think that there's much doubt that that's not something that could be justified if we give equal consideration to the sufferings of the hens or the pigs. But isn't that just an argument for eating free-range meat rather than factory farmed meat? It's an argument that says a clear-cut case is factory farming. And if you want to have something that you can say pretty much definitely is not justified because it exploits animals wrongly, then factory farming is the clearest case. That's not to say that if you get into other forms of farming, you may not still find things that are undesirable that we do to animals and you might still reasonably come to the conclusion that we shouldn't be doing that. But it's certainly not as open and shut or black and white a case as it is with factory farming. And presumably if you go down to eating game, animals that have lived in the wild that have been killed very quickly with a gunshot perhaps, that presumably is more morally acceptable than eating free-range meat which has to be taken to be slaughtered. I think that's generally true. Yes, it will perhaps depend on the particulars and how good a shot you are and how reliably you can put a bullet through the brain of the moving animal and kill it instantly rather than have it wounded and escaping or something like that. But if you are a good shot, it's better to go hunting for your animal, certainly, than to go down to the supermarket for it. See, what I like about what you're saying is it's so reasoned. Everything is consistent. You're looking for an argument that makes distinctions based on not how you feel about killing or animal suffering, but about what the implications are rationally. Most people that I've met who are vegetarians have a complete sense of revulsion about eating meat or harming animals in any way that they might not be able to justify rationally. Perhaps they're not moral vegetarians. Some of them, I suppose, could be aesthetic vegetarians. That is, they are repulsed by the idea of killing an animal. And I agree in a way there is something that does repel me about it, even if I convince myself by the argument we were just having that if you have, say, deer that are reproducing and there's no predators and so on and they will die in winter from lack of food and they will die a slower death and therefore it's okay to to shoot them. Even if I were to convince myself of that, I still wouldn't like the idea of watching that beautiful animal suddenly drop dead and be reduced to a carcass and a piece of meat. But speaking as uh, as a moral philosopher, I do have to really consider whether this is just a kind of a yuck response of the sort that we might have to other things that actually are quite defensible or justifiable, or whether there's a serious ethical reason for not doing it. So do you believe that we should all be vegetarians? Almost all, I would say. If there is someone who is living a traditional indigenous life, whether it's uh, Eskimo who 
survive in a traditional way by killing fish or something like that or Australian Aboriginals who are still living a traditional life that might involve occasionally killing some animals. I would not presume to say to them, you have to abandon this life and go and live in a city where you can earn money and, and buy your food in the supermarket. I think maybe that's a somewhat different situation. So in a sense, those who aren't vegetarians are immoral to a degree, and I'm trying to get an idea of just how immoral is it to eat meat? <laughs> Compared to what, I suppose, is, is what I would say to that. Yes, I think it's morally wrong. None of us are perfect, I guess. I don't consider that everything that I do is perfect. So I'm not really going around stoning people for not doing the right thing, but I think part of living a morally good life should be having concern for the consequences of what you do, having concern for animals who are affected by your actions, and I think those things do say that you'd be living a better life if you were a vegetarian. For me, that's a very classical conception of philosophy that you don't just think it, you live it. Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't be still doing moral philosophy if I thought it was just a theoretical games. You know, When I was a teenager, I was very much fascinated by chess, and I used to spend time looking at chess problems, white to move and made in two, all that sort of thing. Great fun. It's great intellectual stimulation. It's a fascinating thing, but I wouldn't want to spend my life doing it. There must be things that are more important. And sometimes I think people doing philosophy almost reduce it to the level of solving the chess puzzle. Now, I live in Oxford, where there's a, a large building just been built specifically to do research on animals. That's another way in which animals are frequently used that causes them suffering. But that's defended in terms of the outcome. There are other ways of surviving because you can be a vegetarian, but how could you do medical research without doing animal experimentation? There's quite a lot of medical research, of course, that, that is done without doing animal experimentation. A lot of medical research is done through trials with humans, and we've also greatly increased the amount of research we can do using tissue cultures, various things like that, partly as a result of pressure from the animal movement. But I'm not going to say that there's nothing where we could learn something from medical research. So you're not an absolutist. You think there are situations in which it could be morally acceptable to use non-human animals for the benefit of human beings? It could be. I certainly couldn't rule that out as a theoretical possibility. But I would have a very high bar to be cleared before you could go ahead and do that. And one of the reasons I would have a very high bar is that I think the whole institutional practice of research on animals has grown up with that speciesist prejudice that I mentioned before, that animals really don't count or really don't matter very much. And therefore, if we want to find something out, it's not a problem to say, you know, get me 50 rats or get me 20 dogs. So that's why I, I don't want to justify the general practice of animal experimentation, and I certainly don't want to justify or defend what happens in the building that you described that I know has been very controversial in Oxford, because I, I suspect that what's going on there is that scientists are carrying on their business as usual, in which the interests of the animals are not given anything like the weight that the interests of humans at comparable mental levels would be. When you started writing about the suffering of animals, speciesism, and so on. That was a very radical position to take. Things have evolved since then. There are many more people who go along with your reasoning. Do you think that there's going to be a time in the future when people will look back and say, I can't believe they were eating meat. I can't believe they did experiments on chimpanzees. 
I hope so. At least I hope they'll say, I can't believe they were locking animals up in factory farms so that they didn't have room to walk around or even to turn around. And I do hope they'll say, I can't believe the things that people were doing to chimpanzees. In fact, we've almost got to that point now, really, with chimpanzees, that you look back you know, on some of the things that were done not that long ago, 20 or 30 years ago, and people are quite horrified that, that those experiments were permitted. So we are making progress. I very much hope that we'll continue to do so. Peter Singer, thank you very much. Thank you, Nigel. It's been good talking to you. Ethics Bites was produced in association with The Open University. You can listen to more Ethics Bites on open2.net, where you'll also find supporting material. Or you can visit www.philosophybites.com to hear more philosophy podcasts. <laughs>